world is headed for something catastrophic. And that catastrophe is imminent. Uh, those are the words, if you like, the mic drop of Sir David Attenborough at the end of his career, at the end of this Planet Earth 2 series, and the 90-year-old grandfather of nature journalism. At the end of this series, just looked humanity in the eye and, and did what many before him have done. He's predicted global catastrophe and slapped a time frame on it. We're three generations from calamity, he says. He's not the only one to do this, of course. Ever heard of Nostradamus? He is a 16th century uh, fortune teller, in a sense, said that catastrophic floods will call time on time in the year 3792. Got a bit of time then. And he's, of course, Christians believe that the world is headed for a catastrophic end. I don't want to downplay that at all. Um, you cannot read the Bible honestly and not come to that conclusion. Jesus Christ said he's coming back, and there are various passages in the Bible which say that that coming will bring with it cataclysm. But unlike others, we do not believe for one second that you can know when that coming will take place. You can't slap a time frame on it, even though some so-called Christian groups have, like the Mission to the Coming Days set from Australia in 1992. They predicted the coming of Christ on the 19th of October at precisely 2 a.m. Well, it didn't, obviously. He didn't come back at that point. But the next morning, the Sydney Morning, morning Herald reported that a large crowd had gathered outside the sect's building. The crowd cheered as 2 a.m. came and went. And then later, when 55 sheepish devotees of the sect emerged from their building at 5 a.m. that evening, a comedian who was part of the heckling crowd outside said on the news, wow, they were just so upset, you know, crying and everything. So I went over to one guy, put my arm around him and said, hey, mate, cheer up. It's not the end of the world. <laughs> now, it's easy to laugh at that kind of thing. It's easy to laugh at those who make such predictions. And I know that those who set dates are rare. But Matthew 24 says to us, in no uncertain terms, three things this morning. Jesus is coming back. You don't know when. You must be ready now. First thing, Jesus is coming back. Verses 29 to 35. At the very beginning of this chapter, of course, Jesus' closest followers had asked him, what's going to be the sign of your coming? How will we know when it's near? And Jesus said that certain signs might make you think the end is imminent, but it's not. The end is still to come. These are the beginnings of birth pains. And in fact, there's no need to be anxious about identifying the end because verses 29 to 35 tell us that it's going to be unmissable, absolutely unmissable, for three main reasons. Look with me, verse 29. Immediately after the distress of those days. Now, we have to pause there for a second and say, what days? What days? The days of AD 70 or the days of distress that characterize or describe the time between Jesus' first and second appearing? Well, I, I think it's the appearance. I think it's the latter. And there are lots of reasons for that. Let me give you two. First of all, the context makes it clear. Jesus goes on to tell four parables about the end of the world, each of them connected to this particular passage with words like therefore, 
So, for example, the sheep and the goats of Matthew 25 is not about the fall of Jerusalem. It's about being ready for the end. Second reason, the Old Testament passages that Jesus picks up on and quotes in verses 29 to 31 explain not the end of Jerusalem, but the end of the world. Therefore, those days in verses 29 must be talking about the days between Christ's first and second coming. So, three things then, back on track, will, will help us see that Jesus Christ's coming is unmissable. Three things will grab your attention when it happens. The first of those is that you'll see cosmic cataclysm. Verse 29 basically describes for us heavenly bodies, the things that seem so big, the things that seem so permanent to us, like the sun and the moon, they're going to stop doing what they do. The sun that gives its light will go dark. The stars that hang in space will fall. And the last line of verse 29 really characterizes it for us. The heavenly bodies will be shaken. That is going to be so earth-shattering, this appearance. And on that day, God will shake the whole world from its sleepy unbelief. There'll be no agnostics on that day. No one will sit on the fence. And God is going to shake the world from sleepy unbelief in that day. I suppose the same way that you might waken someone from slumber to point out something. He's going to grab everyone's attention for the arrival of his glorious son. And that's the second thing that makes this unmissable, seeing Christ come. Look at verse 30. There talks about the sign and the son. So the sign that goes before Jesus in verse 30 is something that will make his arrival unmissable. Uh, the word sign in verse 30 is actually ensign, or it's the old traditional word for standard or banner. So a banner is going to go before Jesus, uh, figuratively speaking, parading before the coming of his majesty to get everybody ready. Every eye, attention on him. That's what, that's what the sign does. And then it goes on to say that with great power and glory, every eye will see Jesus Christ come. And the one who died on the cross all those years ago in weakness is going to come on the clouds in great glory. And for those who, don't, for those who believe and are ready, it will be absolute bliss. It will be hopes fulfilled. And for those who are not, it will be devastating. They will have left it too late. That's why, as verse 30 says, people will mourn from all the lands of all the earth. People will mourn. Those who faffed about, thinking that they've got time to enjoy life without God and will find themselves crying out in anguish. Contrast that with the third thing that makes this unmissable, seeing the church gathered. Do you see that in verse 31? The elect there are God's chosen ones. The sheep of John 10 that Jesus promised to bring in the ones of whom none would be lost. What happens to them? They are gathered in if like a harvest. And oh, what an absolute, what a day that will be to, to be with him. To see Jesus Christ face to face. Faith will be sight. Our great hope finally realized. Are you looking forward to that day, brothers and sisters? It's coming. And gathered from where? Well, Jesus says they're going to be gathered from everywhere. 
And Jesus, of course, had already said, as we looked at last week in verse 14, that the gospel of the kingdom would be preached to all nations, and only after that, then, the unmissable end would come. And what we have in here is just the the result of that described. And notice this. Don't pass this by, brothers and sisters. This is showing us, proving, if you like, the success of our gospel sharing even before we utter a word. The gathering of the church will be a sign that marks his coming then because saving of souls is exactly what Jesus came to do. That's why it's a great mark of his coming at the end. And those who have been waiting patiently for that moment, those who've been enduring the great distress that typifies life between his two comings, enduring faithfully in the face of temptation and sin for those who have obeyed his command to go and make disciples of all nations will know on that day that this is the day that the new heaven and new earth is brought in. That this is the day when sin and suffering and death is purged, it's gone forever. That's why it's a day to look forward to. What hope is tied up in a little verse like that? Now, he says in verse 32 to 35, learn the lesson from the signs, if you like. That's what the fig tree is all about. The signs won't tell you when I'm coming, he says, but let them awaken you a sense of expectation. I'm coming. I promise my words will never pass away. And when I do come, it will be unmissable. Do you believe that, brothers and sisters? Believe that, friends? What do you make of that? If you're here today, you're not a Christian. What do you make of that? The whole idea of the Christian hope that there is a coming day which, yes, will be typified by cataclysm and Jesus himself will come back. And through the undoing of all things will bring about the renewing of all things in the new heaven and new earth. What do you make of that? Most people assume that tomorrow is just going to be a day just like today. And it does feel that way, doesn't it? I mean... We all make plans for what we're going to do. We're making plans for summer holiday. We're making plans for what we're going to do after the service, etc. But the Bible teaches us that a day is coming that will be very unlike today. And I wonder if we grasp that. The question is, are you ready for it? And the only thing that makes a person ready for that day is faith in Christ, believing in him. Believing that he lived believing that he lived a sinless life, the life that you and I could never live, and believing that he died on the cross, a substitutionary death, a death where he takes our sin on himself and does away with it, and where he places his righteousness on us, credits it to our account when we put our faith and trust in him. Believing in him. That he lived, he died, he rose, he ascended on high, and he's coming back. Believing that when you turn from sin and turn to him, you find forgiveness and life in his name. That's the only way to be ready for this day. The only way. You don't have to try and scrub yourself up. You don't have to try and make yourself better. You'll be at that your entire life. Faith alone is the single determining factor that will make that coming day a day of blissful salvation instead of mournful devastation. What will it be for you? How will you choose? 
Brothers and sisters, I want to say to us this morning, seeing the church gathered from the four winds, north, south, east, and west in this passage, should, of course, stir in us the importance or the necessity of being the kind of people who spread this gospel flagrantly. Who share it with others regularly. He is gathering a people in from all over the world, from Edinburgh as well as the four corners of the earth. And this should put confidence in our evangelism and make us more ambitious. How unloving must we be to keep great news like this from those on the precipice of hell? I'm convicted. Let's talk about it more with them. Jesus is coming back. Secondly, you don't know when. You don't know when. Verses 36 to 41. Actually, only one person knows. Look with me at verse 36. Notice those who don't know when Jesus is coming back, first of all, though. Verse 36. No one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Now, that verse should be enough to prevent any kind of date setting. Enough, in fact, to reject anyone who does. And you would have thought that it would seem strange to the likes of the, the folks from Sydney or Harold Camping more recently that the Lord would give them particular insight into the price, precise time of Jesus' return, but not Jesus himself. It's crazy. No, only God the Father knows. And of course he does. He knows everything. The Bible says he knows the end from the beginning. He knows the silent inclinations of our hearts and the course of shooting stars in the cosmos. He knows everything. He knows the time and date that he's set for the return of Christ, but he's not going to tell you. He's not going to tell me. No, instead, he encourages us to approach the, the future, not knowing it for ourselves, but trusting him as the one who does. We're to put our hand in his. Now, a question is always raised at this point. How come the son doesn't know, but the father does? Aren't we talking about the one God? And the objection goes like this. If God knows all things and Jesus is God, then doesn't it follow logically that if Jesus didn't know the time of his coming, then he isn't God? Good question, but no. I mean, that's what Jehovah's Witnesses would argue today. That's what Arius argued hundreds of years ago. It's around. How do we understand it? How is it that he, the God-man, doesn't know? Well, two reasons. His incarnation and his submission to the Father. His incarnation. So becoming a man meant accepting some kind of limitations. Otherwise, being a man would have been fruitless. If he didn't accommodate himself to humanity's limitations, it would demean the humanness of that nature. And we needed him to be fully man to take our penalty on the cross, right? Secondly, his submission to the Father. It's part of the son's nature. You can't mistake this when you read through the gospel accounts, all four of them. It's part of the son's nature not to take initiative, but to follow his father's prompting. He's the second Adam, fully obedient where the first one failed, okay? And his reason for not doing things or bringing to conscious knowledge certain facts was simply the knowledge that his father did not wish this done. So says G.I. Packer, and that fits with what Jesus taught. For example, John 12 for I did not speak of my own accord, but only what the Father has taught me. John 8 has a lengthy um, 
paragraph or two on this particular issue. See what Jesus says about what the Father knows and what the Son does. It's fascinating. But none of that takes away from his deity. It's a function of his, the fullness of his humanity as he walks among us as one of us. But based on what we find here, based on what Jesus is sharing with us, we find that only the Father knows and no one else does. And to drive that reality home, he illustrates his point by talking about Noah and the flood to show us just how unexpected the end will be. So he says he'll come on a day when people are going about their everyday life. That's exactly what people were doing in the days of Noah. For, as verse 38 says, in the days before the flood... People were eating and drinking. That's an everyday thing to do. Uh, marrying and being given in marriage. There's something where you're planning to do something else in the future. Up to the day Noah entered the ark. What did they know? Nothing. They knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them away. The whole point of that illustration is to point out that it's unexpected. It will be just like that for those who are alive at the time of Jesus' return. People will be booking a table at Jamie's Italian. A bride-to-be will be trying on her dress, expecting to get married in about three months' time. Uh, people will be popping into Sainsbury's, putting off cutting the grass. People will be plucking their eyebrows and looking at new cars at Arnold Clark, and Jesus will return. That is not a specific prophecy, by the way, and don't come back to me with, oh, Arnold Clark's folded now, false prophet. No, don't do that. It's illustrative, brothers and sisters. It will be unexpected. That's the whole point. And actually, verses 40 and 41 drive that home for us, don't they? I mean, it's not talk, this, these verses are not talking about a secret rapture. It's to, it's, in the context, it's clearly highlighting the unexpectedness of Christ's return and the judgment that follows. That's the whole point of the Noah story. Evident, the unexpectedness of Christ's return is evident in that both believer and unbeliever are going to work. One's at the mill. Both are at the mill, actually. And then the judgment that follows, one is to be taken with the Lord and one to be left to face judgment. So let me ask the question. If Jesus is coming back and you don't know when, what does that require of you? What does it require of us? It requires readiness. And this is the third point. You must be ready. Are you ready? Verse 42 says, keep watch. Verse 43 says, be ready. Jesus, on this whole subject of the end, calls for spiritual vigilance. Wake up, pay attention, be ready. Attend to the things that you're supposed to be attending to in this life. So that when the master comes you're not going to be full of regret for what you've not done or for what you are presently doing. I think this is what the illustration of the thief is about. See that in verse 43? If the master of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. In other words, he would have made sure that he did not suffer loss. Okay? He would have been ready. Now, I don't know if you know this, but a, a few months ago, a thief sneaked into our church offices in broad daylight. And while the office was occupied, he came in, 
sneak past the office where Paul and Matt and I were, and sneak past Rachel's office upstairs, went along to the end of the corridor, into my office, and made off with my laptop, my keys, and worst of all, my Tommy Hilfiger jeans. I mean, how low do you need to be to steal someone's favorite jeans? They're irreplaceable, aren't they? Anyway. Now, I was not ready for him. I was not ready for the man who came in and stole my stuff. But if I had known, if I had known what time he was coming, I would have prepared my best taekwondo moves, or I would have set a net, or, or I would have phoned the police. That's what I meant to say. I would have phoned the police. Um, now, I would have been, in other words, I would have been vigilant. I would have paid attention, and I would make sure I would not suffer loss. Jesus says, in relation to the end, don't let it surprise you like a thief. Be ready. Have spiritual vigilance about you so that when he comes, you will not suffer loss. Do you understand? Are you ready for his return? If, if you're here today, again, if you're not a Christian, I'm pleading with you this morning. I'm, I've been praying for you all week. I'm desperate for you to grasp this. If you have not found sin to be loathsome and not found God's grace to be so unbelievably lovely, I need you to see today that you are not ready for him. And he's already said he's coming and you don't know when. And the appeal for you today is to be ready. If you're not trusting in Jesus' blood for the forgiveness of your sins and banking your all on him for a right standing with God, when he comes back, you're going to meet him as a judge and not as a friend. I would be the most unfaithful preacher on this planet if I did not say that to you. 2 Peter 3, another passage that talks about this, says that the reason Jesus hasn't returned yet is because God the Father is being patient with you, not wanting you to perish, but to come to repentance. What does repentance mean? He wants you to put the brakes on in life and do a U-turn, to turn from sin in sorrow over its offense and turn to God, enjoy his love and accepting the invitation. And that's what you, if you're not a believer, need to do to be saved. After the service, there's going to be a prayer team down the front, and I'll be at the door there. We would love to chat to you about this. Speak to the person next to you, the person who brought you. This is too important to let this pass you by. And you might well walk out here today thinking, there are crazy people in there believing what they believe. That's how lots of people think about this to their condemnation. One day, every eye will see him and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord either in faith with joy or with anguish that they were wrong. Are you ready for him coming back? Believe the gospel. And if you are a believer, if you claim to be saved by Jesus Christ, the same question is asked of you. Are you ready? Are we ready for his return? Verses 45 to 51 give us two, a parable of two servants. Two servants of the master, who is Christ, 
in his household, the church. So this isn't really talking about, well, it is talking about believers and unbelievers, but it's talking about within the family of God. And what you've got in here is a contrast between a wise and a faithful servant in verses 45 to 47 and a wicked and unfaithful servant in 48 to 51. What's the wise servant doing? Well, the wise servant is faithfully serving others in the household just as the master has instructed him. But the wicked servant is beating up his fellow servants and exploiting the master's absence. He's taking the master's delay as an excuse for living however he wants to live. Which one are you? We can't shrink back from the pointedness of this passage, brothers and sisters. Which one are you? Which one am I? Verses 46 and 50 tell us that the master returns with reward for the wise servant and judgment for the wicked servant. What awaits you? What awaits us? Are we faithfully going about the master's business, loving our brothers and sisters deeply, meaningfully? Not with superficiality. Are we serving our brothers and sisters as they seek to grow in godliness in our small groups, whether in young adults or WPM or growth groups or time out or whatever? Are you getting to the heart of each other's sin so you're helping each other become more like Jesus? Or are we just throwing out little prayer points that are maybe not so important or sharing the superficial sins that we feel quite comfy sharing rather than getting to the heart and dealing with what we need to deal with before Jesus comes back? Are we serving with the gifts that Christ has given us, or are we coasting? Is our faith just a badge, a verbal claim, rather than a visible reality? Well, this passage demands careful examination of our own hearts, just in case, I think, we're pretending. Just in case we become like the person who appears at the judgment seat of Christ and say, didn't we do this? Didn't we do that? Didn't we do that as well? And Jesus will say, away from me, you evildoer. I never knew you. These are serious warnings for us. We don't want to be thrown to hell, to the place where the hypocrites of chapter 23 are being consigned, to the place of torment conveyed to us in this passage by tears of sadness and the gritting of teeth in anguish and regrets. Be wise, brothers and sisters. Let's be ready. Do you know what God has given us for this endeavor? Just in case you're thinking, oh man, this is tough going. There's a lot to give up. And there's a lot to start doing. Well, praise God for 2 Peter as a book. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through a knowledge of him who loved us. So make every, you've got all the power that you need on supply. Therefore, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge and to knowledge self-control and continue on, brothers and sisters. You see what it is? I'm not asking you to scrub yourself up. I'm saying grab the gospel. Get the gospel. See how the power of the gospel drives us forward and gives us everything we need for obeying him and walking in his ways. 
It's a beautiful thing to consider. It's a gracious thing for him to do. So live today in such a way that makes the coming of Christ not something to be dreaded, but something to long for. Whether you're a Christian today or not, the question is, are you ready? Jesus is coming back. You don't know when. Please, you must be ready. Let's pray.